Hi, and welcome to And If Love Remains. I am your host, Mike Levitt, and we have uh, on the line today a special guest, uh, Dr. Elias Axel Pedersen. And, um, uh, you know, we've had him on. I think this is going to be, you know, somewhere close to 80-ish podcast. And Elias, wow. I think you, you've been on maybe 20 of them, I think, something like I that. I think as a guest, uh, almost 20. Yeah. Then- kind of co-hosting we've had maybe 10 guests some of them three times so right i think i've co-hosted 20 plus that's that's fantastic so So, um but i think it's important like um people to know who you are and and so um i want to just just mention to people what you know uh, the kinds of things that you're doing um so, so Elias is, is not just a good friend, but he's a, he's a Swedish American pianist and has established himself as a formidable soloist, chamber musician, um, and pedagogue. Um, he's a Mason Hamlin concert artist. He has garnered prizes on the national and international level and has been heard on national radio through KHFM and KUNM. Pedersen is, is a frequent performer, lecturer, masterclass teacher and competition jury member throughout the United States, Canada, and Sweden. He's known for his conscientious, holistic approach, combining an extensive music theory and and, uh, history background with his training in Alexander Technique, which has produced many prize-winning students. Um, Among other chamber music collaborations, Pedersen uh, uh, formed Duo Giocoso in 2008 Mm -hmm. with French violinist Roland Arnassalon, um, right. And uh, Eterna Sirius in 2017 with uh, pianist Jessica Yam. Pedersen champions contemporary composers, and he's got a, a list. Go check out the list of composers that he has worked with and has, has written music specifically for him. Um, he's released three albums on Axel Records and has cultivated a, a loyal online following through his website and YouTube cha- channel. And as everyone here knows, he also co-hosts the podcast And If Love Remains with yours truly. Um, he is, uh, in 2015, he founded the Southwest Piano Festival, a summer performance series dedicated to promoting the art of piano in New Mexico and local talent. In 2018, he became the program and competition director at Arizona Piano Institute, a Phoenix-based nonprofit organization whose mission enables preparatory and collegiate piano uh, students to study with renowned international artists and faculty. And that is a wonderful, wonderful program. I've seen that in action. It's it's an incredible program for people who are able to participate. Um, And I'd like it once again. Oh, he's also... um, uh, he's joined the faculties uh, at Admont Music School, uh, Music School in Vermont, and at the Arizona School for the Arts, as well as Rosie's House. He's the co-chair of the piano department. Um, and I, I just, again, I, I most of all, most important to me, he's a good friend, and he's a great, great co-host of Andy Flow Remains. And I'm excited to talk about the subject, which fits right into to what we've been doing. So, thank you very much, Elias, for being on the show. Oh, thanks, Mike. I, I love coming back and, and being a guest now. I mean, we've had a lot of uh, guests come and, and talk about various things. We had Mar- recently Mark Ainley back on, but not to talk about piano, but rather feng shui. So I hope everybody got to listen to that. Oh, I hope so. That was a great conversation. And, and you know, we've had, we had, we've had some amazing guests and, and a lot of fun, but, but still to this day, one of the most popular episodes that, that I get is, is that, uh, is the, the, um, for, 
excuse me, the four part series we did very, mm-hmm. very early on. Yeah, that's right. And uh, we started out with that. That was the basis of my my doctoral thesis or dissertation on Mussorgsky's pictures at an exhibition. So we did a four part series on that. That was a lot of fun to do. That was a lot of fun. It was it was great, and I hope people maybe will check that out. Um, in fact, I got a great. In fact, my, my brother, I have to tell you, Elias, uh, my brother contacted me. He's like, because he played in in the orchestra. He plays uh, double bass, oh, and okay, uh, okay. and he uh, uh, he told me how he he played that in, in in a couple of orchestras, and so he was very mm-hmm. excited to hear that history. And 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 you know, we get into a lot of interesting topics. Um, oh, that's awesome. So it was fun. I don't, I'm not sure if I mentioned that to you, but yeah. I don't was, remember that, but that's cool. I didn't realize he played bass. So yeah, he, yeah, he probably played the or- Ravel orchestration of that piece. I think you're right. I think he did. I think he mentioned that. Uh, by the way, wh- who else did uh, symphonic uh, orchestrations of that? So there, <clears throat> actually, Ravel was not the first. He, he was, I think, the fourth, if I remember from my research. It's been a long time since I right. uh, wrote that thesis. Oh, gosh. Oh my man, more than ten years ago now, but um, yeah, there was there was a British um, British conductor Tuckman Tuckwood, I think. Uh, Nikolai Rimsky Korsakov did a version, though not complete. Um, there was a Russian Russian guy, fairly, I mean, right after Mussorgsky, I think before Ravel. So I think there were two or three musicians before, and then since you know Ashkenazi's done a version. Um, and Naumov did a version for piano and orchestra. Um, Stakovsky did a version for orchestra. So oh, that'd yeah, be kind of interesting. I was just thinking that that'd be interesting to to hear like the concerto version of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, the only one I've ever heard in concert is the Ravel orchestration. I've never heard any of the others in concert. I've only heard one or two of the others online and some I've just never heard of before. <laughs> uh, I found them on, you know, some rare old disc somewhere and, and but still it's hard to find great. some of it yeah. well um one of the things I, I, and i wanted to have you on and and because one of the things we discussed talking about mm-hmm. is um kind of the direction of piano today we've had mm-hmm. again we've had this conversation with several of our guests and and in the context of other topics but mm-hmm. but i wanted to kind of hone in on on where is the art of piano heading um, you know, who are some of the, the players that have influenced today's players and who are some of the, uh, you know, the, the up and comers that, that we need to kind of keep our eye on and, and kind yeah. of what makes great piano art today? Cause I, cause it, we, again, talking to Mark Ainley, that's, you know, it, it's interesting the, the, the evolution of piano. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so, so let's, let's talk a, a little bit about that. Where, um, Maybe let's talk more broadly speaking and talk about like um, the state of, of piano today. Yeah, I, I think it's great first that we've had so many guests that have, have been able to talk about music in general. And, um, and we're mostly talking about Western classical, you know, art music, but we've delved into some other genres as well. Um, people that have gone into EDM, you know, and, and electronic and jazz and, and uh, folk and and of course classical draws from any and all of these and influences uh, all of them as well to some extent so there's a lot of crossover but uh, the piano um, is is a relatively old instrument but compared to many instruments it's it's not that old at all i mean there are the guitar and the <clears throat> kind of precursor to that is pretty ancient harps are of course there are, there are pictures of harps in ancient rome and greece but um the piano as we know it today really developed in the 1700s 
And uh, those were the first pianos when they were called pianofortes. They could play loud and soft, soft, which kind of set them apart from the keyboard instruments of the time that could only play a certain dynamic level. Uh, mostly harpsichords were available, clavichords, organs. Right, and if very limited in the dynamic range. Right, and and I mean, organs could be manipulated a lot depending on the stops you used. Most of it depended on you know which church had which organ that you played in uh, in the 1600s, 1700s. But uh, along came Bartolomeo Cristofori in the seven you know or late 1600s and and created this this keyboard instrument that of course much different than the modern piano, but uh, it could play louder and softer. So we got sort of this this in betweener um, forte piano. And that was sort of the norm for maybe 50 to 100 years until the Industrial Revolution really kicked in and, and took the piano to a whole different level until we just basically call it the piano today. Um, and so it's, it's developed a lot in the last 150 or maybe 200 years, but maybe hasn't changed all that much in the last 50 to 100 years. Um, and that's part, we even see that in the repertoire, you know, that we're playing most things from way back then. It's, it's rare to, right. uh, to go to a concert out here. A lot of contemporary music, there are pushes for it. There are niches that you, that you see in here. Um, but that the main concert halls, you're hearing big names play Beethoven, Bach, Brahms, you know, the, the standards, if you will, the classical repertoire. And, um, now is that, do you think that's because that's what the audience is demanding? Or do you think that's because, um, that's just the, 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 that, I mean, I, I don't want to say that's the best music that was written, mm-hmm. but, but, you know, over time, those have become classics for a reason. Well, actually a, a lot of what people don't realize is that there was tons more written in those days. And, um, there are reasons that the music that we play, even from Beethoven's time or Bach's time is, is what we play. Uh, there was a lot more music that was just filtered out. Now, some of that might have been better or just different. And, and there are other there are political things and social pressures that might choose one or favor one over another. I mean, sure. that, that happens today, too. And, and that happens in the art world. I mean, look at who becomes famous in the art world. It's it's not always just based on how good one is or, or the craft. And, and we yeah. can get into that discussion, too, of, of what makes something good. And I, I hope we do. I know we touched on it a bit with with Mark, and I know with uh, Tom Rosencrantz we have, and um, what makes something great and long lasting. But um, yeah, I think these these kind of masterworks or whatever came down for for various reasons, and they became what people got used to. So it's a bit of coming from both sides. The audience members are wanting that, and so the the people that are organizing the concerts give that to them, and it, it's very hard to push those boundaries. There are some organization organizations that try and, and uh, promote more new music by new composers but it's always it's always a struggle you know every big orchestra is going to do a beethoven symphony that season um yeah they're not going to do a lot of new works so it's uh it's always well, i a think struggle. that's that's the other thing it, it, it is it's it's kind of like uh um you know, maybe a, a great band that's been playing for 40 years. Like people mm-hmm. want to hear the whole catalog and yet mm-hmm. you only have a certain amount of time. I, you know, that yeah. trying to, we all, that, that's the, that's the issue is always trying within a limited space and time, like figure out what do we want to play? And, and everybody wants to hear so-and-so's version, you know, of, 
um, you know, a Beethoven sonata or, 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 mm-hmm. you know, another person's version. And, and, and because number one, we can relate to it, but number two, we want to see what does that person do with it? Right. Right. The, the nice thing about hearing pieces that have been played so often is you can maybe hear a new interpretation of that piece. And yeah. Certainly I'll talk about that with some of the pianists we talk about today. Um, but yeah, a lot of more inventive organizations or, or soloists will, will try to mix and match. And I certainly, in my programs, I try to do something that is, that is old or established and known, but also mix it with a, diff- a piece from a different or pieces from different eras, uh, maybe lesser known composers that are yeah. still old or maybe a contemporary composer. I, I've done, as you mentioned, a lot of contemporary work. I don't consider myself a contemporary specialist per se. I think I, I try not to pigeonhole myself into any specialization because I like to play it all really. Um, but there are those that only do premieres and world premieres. And uh, I've got a friend in Montreal. He has a, a group that's very avant-garde and they do concerts every year. And, and he, he might perform 20 new pieces in a year. I don't wow. know the numbers now, but it's just a crazy amount of, of uh, repertoire. And, and, and it's if, very difficult. And again, you know, especially as things, you know, become more, you know, it's not, it's not like the works that, that we already know and love are going away. And so again, mm-hmm. that, that space gets more and more crowded. Um, mm-hmm. but, but let's uh, maybe just shift a little bit and talk instead of, you know, like piano and, but I want to talk about pian, uh, pianism, pianism, yeah, pianism how it's changed the P yeah, yeah. The, the way that people play the piano and, and, and the techniques and, and like, what are we seeing today versus maybe what we saw, you know, 50 or 60 years ago? Yeah. Well, I think that, um, since the piano itself, the, the instrument hasn't changed much in the last 150 years, really since list, uh, the, the style of, of writing for that instrument, you know, there are certain limitations or, or whatnot. Of course, there are some new pianos being made now. In fact, there is just one recently. I think I sent you a post. Some company has a new piano that has 108 keys. Yeah, that Australian company. Australian piano. Yeah. It's crazy, but well, kind of interesting, you know. So there are some new fandangled things and some that might take hold. But the general concept of, of having that metal plate, that cast iron plate, to hold a lot more tension and, and halls were getting bigger in the uh, 1800s and early 1900s. And uh, the instrument hasn't changed a whole heck of a lot since then. Um, and so the technique for playing it has, you know, not necessarily changed if you say there's a sort of a good technique. I mean, it's, it's built around the body. The body hasn't changed all that much either in the, in the last 150 years or hundred years. So <laughs> Well, we've gotten um, bigger. <laughs> we've gotten a little bigger, yeah. At least in this country, so right. I guess we can. Uh, we, we can. <laughs> we need larger them. benches. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's funny. Softer cushions, but, right? <laughs> what, what was? It? I mean, if you look at late pictures of like Brahms or whatever, you know, he's leaning back. There's actually one um, uh, professor, Peter Shickley. He's a professor, and, he, and he's created this um, this archetypal musician composer. I don't know if that's the right word, but PDQ Bach. I don't know if you've heard oh, of him. Oh, I love PDQ Bach. Yeah, he's so funny. And um, <laughs> and so actually there's a biography of him and, and Peter Shickley talks about I mean, It's all fictitious. So if you yeah. don't know about PDQ Bach, look it up. He's the um, oh, creative. The Misa you know, Hilarious imaginary. is hilarious. You got to check yeah. that out. 
Yeah, and so you know, he he talks about him getting so big that he couldn't reach the keyboard by the end of his life, and he had to write. He couldn't do the hand crossings anymore, but whatever. Um, anyway, yeah. So piano technique um, hasn't changed so much, but I think what has changed a lot since the advent of at least recordings and this sort of globalization that's taken place in the last hundred years, which has really some incredible advantages. Um, and, and of course the internet has just taken that to a new level, great advantages, some, maybe some disadvantages in a way. Uh, and one of the, one of the, I'll say what it was like pre-internet days, you really had schools of piano playing. You had the French school, you had the Russian school, you had um, maybe a sort of central European German-ish school uh, and may, maybe an American British school, but not that wasn't so strong per se, but you definitely had people or proponents from those different schools. Um, nowadays, it's really just one conglomerate. You don't have so much of a difference between a Russian pianist, let's say, and, uh, and a French pianist or an American pianist. What matters more is maybe who they study with or where they went to school. I mean, there are plenty of Russian and, and Asian students, especially now at, at places like Juilliard and Eastman. Right, uh, which are both in the United States, and so this sort of idea of um, a regional or a, a local way of piano playing or technique doesn't really exist anymore. Um, how you do still you feel get like, schools? How do you feel ahead, about sorry. that? What is that? What is that like? I, you know, I hate to get all like uh, you know psychological, but but it seems like we, we're missing something if we, if we get rid of that. We could be. I mean, I think things have been. More, it's more homogeneous in a way. The the piano has also become more streamlined. You know, Steinway after World War II, uh, because of you know which factories were bombed and which were saved. You know, they ended up having a leg up on a lot of the competition because a lot of the big German and Austrian manufacturers were were destroyed. Whereas, you know, Steinway was going strong in the United States. So, post World War II, uh, Steinway basically just blew the competition out of the water and got all their pianos into concert halls and, and things have been Steinwayified, if you can, if you will, yeah. where um, a lot of the sound, a lot of the, the mechanism, whatever they have kind of became the norm and everything was compared to that. Now, some of that has broken down recently. Some companies have started to really thrive and uh, Yamaha is quite a big contender and there are Yamaha schools or Kawai schools, you know, things right. like that. But um, still in the classical world, at least in, in classical concert halls, uh, Steinway is the most common. Now, if you go to all halls in the world, which include recording studios, jazz studios, rock studios, uh, Yamaha is the most ubiquitous. I mean, they make far more sure. pianos. And they well, have and, I, and I've said, I, in my opinion, Yamaha is the best production piano like you, you could probably put your hands on it's a fantastic and actually they're very top end pianos that can compete you know with with anything i think there are about 10 manufacturers in the world where their top ends it's really it's, it's more about nitpicky. taste it's more about taste yeah it's yeah. they're all phenomenal pianos uh and but they just make so many and they make so many different instruments as well so it's it's more so, versatile so if you you're a, be a player, Yamaha artist I was just gonna ask. So, if you're if you're a player, like, is it about like, um, and I don't want to oversimplify, but Mm -hmm. is it about you know playing faster, better, more perfect? Like, what what are you what are you competing with when you're if you're, um, you know, as a as a as a pianist, you know, a budding pianist, you you know, what are what are you looking to do? 
Well, so that's another thing, along with the changes in, in the piano itself, or at least the streamlining of that uh, recording has really affected the way that, that pianists play. And like I was saying before, you had these diverse uh, regions that might play in a certain style, and now it's sort of a globalized style. Uh, it's really hard, hard to play outside that norm or find your own voice, which is why when we listen to some old recordings, you know, when Mark Ainley brings on some corto, it, it sounds so interesting and foreign and sort of wrong because we're not taught to necessarily play like that with uh, that, those kinds of freedoms. Um, I think the digital age and the recording age really brought about an incredible wealth of, you know, opportunities where you could be in your living room and, and listen to a pianist that you otherwise never would have been able to hear. Uh, you know, even the greatest pianists of that day uh, touring, they, they might not make it to everywhere. Uh, they're not going to. And so you might not ever see them in your lifetime, but you could sure buy a recording of them, uh, of theirs and, and listen to that. And so that was a great um, sort of democratization of the music and getting it to everybody. But as a result, then everybody bought that one recording of Horowitz or that one right. recording of Rubinstein. And that was, you know, that was a norm. That was the And benchmark. that becomes the standard that everything else is compared to. Yeah. Yeah. So you're comparing that. So that's one, one thing. I mean, recordings has changed pianism and, and all music for better or worse. Uh, there are advantages to it, of course. Nowadays, I tell my students that, you know, and, and I'm not that, that old, but when I was a student, if I wanted to listen to a recording or get an interpretation about, of, of a certain piece, first of all, it had to be available. If it was a standard, yes. If it was not so, so standard, it might not be available. Uh, then I'd have to maybe go to the library and see if they had the CD or in some cases the LP. Right. You know, and uh, check it out or listen, maybe only listen to it there because you're not allowed to take it out of the library. You know, that yeah. happened a lot when I was a student. Um, and yeah, and that's that's what you get to listen to. You hear it that one time and maybe you don't hear it again. Whereas today, you know, you, could, you go on YouTube and you can find anything and you can have hundreds of versions of that thing and, uh, you know, click of a button. Uh, it's so easy to find different interpretations and be influenced by them. So. I often tell my students, yeah, it's right there for you. You can check, but maybe don't check right away. You know, maybe do a little bit of your own work, learn the piece, learn the notes, learn the rhythms, get, get an idea of what, what the structure is. Once you've come to an idea of what it would be based on your musical knowledge and skills, then listen to some of the great artists that play it and see what they do differently. That was, the, you know, that was an interesting, and I appreciate you bringing that up. Cause that reminds me, somebody else gave that same advice. Uh, one of our, Oh, Dave. I think Daniel Shapiro talked Daniel about Shapiro, that. yeah. It was he that, that that said, you know, that that he didn't want his students to, you know, listen until they've, you know, at least gotten a grasp of the piece. Um and that, you know, I think that's it's it, it seems counterintuitive because because, you know, especially as a uh, a modern pianist who's used to having everything at their finger fingertips, mm -hmm. you know, one would want to you know, listen to it and, and try to gather what do you like and what don't you like and, and think that would be an advantage. But I can see that not necessarily turning out, you know, as as well as you might think. Yeah, well, there has to be a balance. I mean, certainly when I was a student, undergrad, graduate, I was wanting to play pieces that I'd already heard before. It was rare that I would just say, oh, I want to play something I've never heard. We're drawn to certain pieces and we want to play them. So, uh, but our teacher will theoretically know many more pieces and say, well, check this out. You might not know this piece. I think it would be a good match for you. And 
and try it first, you know, and then maybe listen to it or listen to it once, get the gist and then work on it. Uh, so there's got to be a balance. I, I don't think you can just listen to the piece and try to copy everything on that um, without really internalizing it and, and learning it for yourself. Okay. So, yeah, and so, depends. it depends on the age of the student, the level of the student, the independence of the student. You know, if I have a, a young student that plays something, I might, uh, when, when we choose pieces, I always play through the piece so they at least get an idea of what it's supposed to sound like by the end. Um, so they have a goal and they, oh, that sounds great. You know, of course, they might er never play it at that uh, at that level or that tempo, but they've got some goal in mind. Yeah. So that, that motivates them. What, um, it, you know, I, it, it, and I, as somebody who, you know, does master classes, does um, uh, uh, specifically competition um, judging, um, you know, how do you, when you're listening to a pianist, um, you know, what are you listening for versus maybe when you're, when you're coming across somebody, you know, you're listening to Daniel Shapiro, maybe you didn't know Daniel Shapiro, but you, you know, you're mm -hmm. listening to somebody or you go to see a, a concert. Um, you know, what are the, what are the things that you are more honed into, um, as when you're, I guess, listening critically? Mm -hmm. Well, it's, um, I think this is, <clears throat> goes to the crux of something that, we, we talked about with Tom Rosencrantz as well that that having that knowledge going into a concert is is a good thing usually but sometimes not so much because it's very easy to judge you know most of the concerts I go to I've heard the music before and so I have sort of preconceived notions of what it's supposed to sound like or how I would play it if I've played the piece or uh, you know if I've taught the piece and and that can be a dangerous thing you know because if a pianist doesn't play it in the way that you're thinking it should be played, then it's easy to say, well, they're just bad instead of maybe listening to it on the own merits that they've created and, and the, right. uh, the different rubric and say, okay, well with those ideas, musical ideas in mind that they want to portray, uh, it was good or it was successful. It wasn't uh, such a disaster. Um, that can be tricky. And so of course, what I'm looking for, and I, I think what every pianist and teacher says that they're looking for but maybe doesn't really walk the walk per se is, you know, th they want to listen for imagination and ingenuity and this elusive term we say musicianship, which, you know, what does that mean? Right. Mostly taught tastes. And that, that depends on the culture that you've, you've grown up in. But like I said before, we're such a globalized world that if you grew up in, you know, in, in Siberia versus you grew up in New York city, um, hundred years ago, you might have very different views of music because you wouldn't even hear the same music. But nowadays that, that Russian pianist from Siberia could be studying alongside the student from New York and in the same school with the same teacher. So they have very similar experiences. But, um, also competition playing, I feel is, uh, that, that's a big topic. It's, it's good. It's very good. Uh, the competition level has gotten so high. Uh, of course, I haven't judged the, the big international competitions. I've judged on, on the national level, and I've, I've partaken in, uh, as a contestant, you know, in national and international competitions, um, though not the, not the largest ones. Um, I did audition for Sydney. <laughs> Sydney is one of the, the big, wow. big yeah, 10 big or big one. 15. And, um, but, you know, the, the levels of those are so high, and there's so many as well. Now, uh, if you look back 100 years ago, or even 60 years ago there were 
maybe half a dozen, maybe 10 international competitions, big inter international competitions that you could do. And basically, if you won one of those, your career was set the rest of your life. You, you just need. And now there are competition winners that are winning multiple competitions. They're entering multiple big competitions and getting prizes. And and it's just there are so many other people that are also winning competitions that it's hard to uh, hard to make a name for yourself. Um, and there are those that that don't win the competitions that uh, that still make a big name. You know, one person that comes to mind is uh, Ivo Pogorelic, who back in the the seventies was winning some small things, and he entered the the Chopin competition in nineteen eighty, I want to say, and he was eliminated eliminated in the I think in the semifinal round. You know, it was it was a big uh, sort of scandal, and uh, Martha Argerich who was the jury member, one of the jury members walked out. She was, Oh wow. She didn't like that. She wanted to support him, thought he was the greatest. It turns out that the winner of that competition is, is an equally phenomenal pianist. And I, I do want to talk about him a bit. Dong Tai Sun, who has, whose, uh, his career has gone uh, like on a meteoric, uh, I guess, path recently, but he's a phenomenal pianist and he was a very deserving winner. Uh, and so I think I, I don't want, um, the the fact that Ivo Pogorelic was eliminated to you know to detract from Dong Tai Sun's win he was great but also Ivo Pogorelic ended up developing a huge career a huge career probably the biggest of anybody from that year in fact and one of the largest ever uh, as this just phenomenal pianist and he is recent years he's he's gotten a little bit I would say crazy in his interpretations but I'll always respect him as a, as a great musician and pianist well but, uh, that just by the way, that's the other that, that's the other thing when it comes to interpretation because like any art I mean at some point when you have so many competitions you have so many really phenomenally technically great pianists mm -hmm. like what do you do to set yourself apart mm-hmm yeah the level now it, everybody plays so cleanly and it's interesting you say technique i think this is a word that's that's often abused or or used incorrectly um and people think of it like oh well he can play fast that's technique or what i would call finger dexterity right. is technique but actually i think technique is much more all-encompassing and so when i refer to somebody as having a, a great technique or a great command i think of their ability to command and, and control the sound and the the pedaling and you know the voicing and all these things that are just beyond simple finger dexterity, uh, because there are, there are always going to be people that can play louder and faster in a way, and right. they're not always the greatest artists out there. Um, they might win some things, you know. They're going to be the fastest racehorses, uh, and often the the top competitors at competitions are panned because they're just seen as well. They were technically proficient, but where's the inspiration kind of thing? Uh, and I think. I think it's unfair sometimes because there are some great people, uh, winners out there and the same, the same teachers, the same tried and true jury members that want to promote this sort of artistic sensibility are the ones that are choosing those same war horses or, or race horses, I should say, right. to win the competition. So, so it's, it's like a, you know, it's this, it's this echo chamber that starts yeah. you know, kind of happening. Yeah. You kind of get what you, you reap what you sow. And I feel that, a lot of the teacher, the teaching today, we've talked about this a little bit before, is is um, holding on to some old things, which is good, some tradition, but they're not uh, they're not being flexible enough and and allowing for new growth or new development. And 
they don't have to. They've they've become established in a in an era that you could become more easily established. They've got some great students coming to them. They don't really need to do much past that or beyond that. And I think some of the greatest teachers out there are the ones that are like in that second tier, where they're not they're not the big names. They're not getting the greatest students, but they're making something with the students yeah. they've got. You know, so I was I was thinking about um, Thomas Rosencrantz, who who you know when we talked in, and he does a lot of mentoring and teaching um, at, mm-hmm. at at a at a conservatory. And you know, one of the things he said is is one is you know the young students today, um, un, you know maybe for the first time in history are the ones that are more conservative are the ones that are mm-hmm. afraid of taking big, big risks. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I find that extremely interesting. Yeah. So I think we've gotten to a point in, in uh, the piano world and it, it goes up and down, you know, there's like a roller coaster at waxes and wanes, but things have become so uh, recordings are so ubiquitous and it's so easy to see the, the competition winners that um, there's this pressure to play so cleanly as the, as the ultimate goal. Um, and even in my own playing, I mean, it's, it's a brutal pressure. And especially as I've gotten older, the expectations are, are higher um, that you have to play so cleanly. And, and the, the amount that you have in reserve for making some artistic uh, expression is, is not very much. Um, and it's not always celebrated. So, yeah, it's it's hard. It's a very tough world, I think, now to be a concert pianist, which is almost an anachronism today compared to what it was 50 years ago. And, you know, couple that with dwindling, in some ways, dwindling audiences, uh, which doesn't have to be the case. And, you know, I could go on about that. But, um, and that music isn't as much a part of our culture, or at least I should say this kind of music isn't. Uh, we are developing more and more music. I mean, it's part of everybody's life, but it's it's more bite size. It's more um, self. You know, it's more gratifying in, in the in the short term. Well, and and um, I, I'm just produced. thinking about I'm, I'm just thinking about this offhand and kind of what you're talking about. You know, especially especially um, you know, I, I just say here in the United States where you know competition is a big thing. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's the what, what am I trying to say? When you see artists as athletes, mm-hmm. um, that I think that changes the relationship between what your expectation of what you want to hear, um, you know, versus, um, you know, if you see them as artists, I, like mm. there's, there's a difference. There's a difference between, yeah. as you mentioned, a racehorse, you know, and, and, a a, a, a prancing, uh, you know, perfect, prancing pony you know they're both yeah. extremely difficult and hard you know but but they, they're serving two completely different purposes mm-hmm. and it's easy to mix those two up yeah and i think the the best musicians today can combine the two but it's it's tough and so um what i thought we'd maybe do i mean we're talking about sort of the development of pianism i'll talk about two paradigms that i think have come down okay and how i think yeah. that there's maybe some light or some hope right now because i know when we t- talked to mark most recently it was more about uh, uh the good old days <laughs> yeah the good old days and what's going on now it's sort of uh, just a shadow of that but i, I think there's some, I, but he admitted to there some shadows oh of, he of definitely light did, yeah or some beams of light coming through the shadows um so i think the two paradigms really are this uh this idea of 
cleanliness, precision, you know, maybe attention to the score in, in a very literalistic or literal sense or way. And I think that's brought on by, by recording is a big part of it. But also I think there are a couple pianists, one I'll, I'll draw in or I'll talk about in particular that, um, took us down this path for better or ill. And I think he's one of actually my favorite pianists and that's uh, Arturo Benedetto Michelangeli. Uh, and he's such an amazing pianist. I mean, he is considered one of the greats of the 20th century. He's in that uh, Phillips collection and everything. And uh, he, he's a phenomenal pianist, a, a very elusive character, um, canceled a lot of concerts. You know, he was, it was hard to pin down and every concert that he played was meticulously crafted and, and perfect um he actually turns out to be my teacher's teacher as well so my, no my teacher studied with him uh for a little so, while and so you're like his grandfather teacher. like his grand student although I, I, don't, yeah. I don't put too much into that because <laughs> i know a lot of people now love to just draw their lineages like oh well i'm the great 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 grand student of beethoven it's right like, well, we, all, we all are we <laughs> all <know>? are <laughs> we all are so that doesn't say much about you but you know maybe one or two teachers back that could that could have an influence, um, and certainly with me, I, I studied Debussy a few pieces of Debussy with my teacher, and my teacher happened to study those pieces with Michelangelo when he was recording them. So I got oh, a lot of you know, secondhand knowledge from from those recordings of how uh, how he worked on it. And so that I consider very valuable. And, and by the way, uh, when but, you when you and I hate to say close because that's kind of close, like you said, secondhand. <laughs> like how does that influence how you perform and play them? Oh, well, certainly if I have one idea of this piece or a, a conception of it, and then my teacher says, well, you know, this was how Michelangeli might have performed it or what he worked on. And Michelangeli, uh, let's see, would he have known, I should have looked this up before we did the, the podcast, if he had known Debussy or people that played for Debussy. Okay. Um, but uh, certainly... My teacher, uh, Paul Stewart, who I'll talk about as well, uh, he played for a uh, fellow named Vlad Perlmuter, uh, and Perlmuter knew Ravel. Uh, they were friends. And, okay. Uh, he uh, actually, uh, I think one or two pieces of Ravel's were written for Perlmuter. So in one or two of the pieces, my teacher said, oh, yeah, I, I played this piece for Perlmuter. And he said that there's actually this note here that's missing, and, oh, this is supposed to be phrased this way because Ravel told him. You know, That makes a big difference in how oh, yeah. I would play the piece because I might not have known that or thought of that or, or assumed that. Um, so yeah, those, those direct links can help a lot and change your interpretation. So um, with that, so with, with Michelangelo, I mean, he was so perfect and I think everybody, you know, saw that and it changed pianism a bit and people thought, okay, we've got to, we've got to play like that. And, and on, on the other side, not necessarily another pianist, but there are others that maybe weren't, such the the clean freaks, the OCD types, and they were more, much more free with their art. And uh, and not to say that he was cold, by the way. And this is what a lot of people pan people, uh, pianists like Michelangelo or violinists like Heifetz. They were so perfect and so pristine in their playing that um, critics saw that they were cold, uh, and they weren't cold at all. They just were very you know exacting, uh, but they had really good class and taste in their in their playing. Um, so anyway, that, I think that kind of coming down, that really perfect way of playing and then this other sort of artistic, very flamboyant, maybe freestyle in, in like a Courteau or something like that. Um, right. Those, those dualities or, or a Sifra who is very just 
you know, improvisatory and, and miss notes, you know, but even Horowitz, Horowitz missed tons of notes, tons of notes in recordings and concerts. But who cares? You know, who is the most famous pianist ever? Probably right. Horowitz, at least in, in our day, maybe Liszt, Franz Liszt or Beethoven in a way, but but uh, we don't have recordings of them. So right. we, we don't really know how they played. I mean, yeah, absolutely. But, certainly the most, the most famous uh, recorded pianist of all time is Horowitz. There's no doubt. Yeah. I think if you ask my grandparents, the, things have uh, obviously changed a lot, but if you asked a, a typical person back then, a non-musician, they would know two names, probably uh, Horowitz and Van Cliburn and, and Van Cliburn because you know, he, he won the, the Tchaikovsky competition in 58, and that was the height of the Cold War with, with Russia. And here, this lanky Texan, six foot four, you know, wins, wins this, uh, this competition. He's sort of the darling of everybody there and brings the, the two countries a little bit closer together. And that was, that was a huge feat. In fact, he was given a ticker tape parade in New York City, I think the only classical musician to ever have a ticker tape parade in his honor. <laughs> so he was a national hero, essentially. Yeah. This classical pianist that just wouldn't happen today. It just wouldn't make sense to anybody. What? What? what I mean, what, Horowitz and and um, and Van Cliver. What, what? What was it about those two that set them apart and made them so iconic in um, in the world? Because they they're I mean they're more than just piano stars. I mean they were mm-hmm. you know they were cultural icons. Well, I think. Um, Van Cliburn, It's easier. I I actually love Van Cliburn, Though some people might say he's not quite the level of a greatest, greatest ever, but I actually, I really love his playing. I think it's very, uh, very sincere, very heartfelt. Uh, he certainly had a command, but he was, he was at the right place at the right time. And he, he was at this cultural crossroads and, and represented something so much for, you know, when, when wars are fought in the world, it's really over ideas and, and who's, who has a better idea and who's better. And art is one of those things. Art is like the, pinnacle of, of human humanism or human ideals and thought uh, and high art, something like this, where you're honing your skills to such a high level and honing your craft. Uh, it's, it's, you know, that's, that's a representation of your culture in a way. And so actually Russia was hoping to have one of their pianists win and prove to the West that you know, communism was, was triumphant because of their winner. And, and how it turned out was that Van Cliburn won and, you know, the, the jury of the competition actually had to ask uh, Khrushchev. So the main jury, uh, head of the jury was Emil Gillels, one of the great pianists of the 20th century. And he had to ask Khrushchev, the, you know, of, of Russia, like, are we allowed to give first prize to this American? Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I don't want to have uh, the gulag. <laughs> I don't want to have right. the KGB come to my doorstep tomorrow <laughs> because he got first prize. It's like no, no. It's 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 okay. You know, he he deserves he he deserves it. He deserves it. Yeah. Um, and actually brought the countries closer, and I think was one of one of the small parts in in uh, breaking down barriers. So I mean, music is a huge cultural influence and can can help on the political spectrum. Too. And then so, what about what about Horowitz? I mean, what was Horowitz, about him? Yeah, and and I would say also one of the other big names of that time was probably Rubinstein. So sure. Yeah. Those two are kind of a little bit opposite each other but um horowitz was just so electrifying when he played and had he had such magnetism when he played and of course he could he had sort of dazzling fingers and he made transcriptions of course that's something that's sort of a lost art Uh, not many pianists do that today but he would take opera 
themes like Carmen and make a tr piano transcription from that. Um, just a vast repertoire, incredible way of playing things, a very new way, a very singing way, um, incredible command of sound and, and colors and pedals and all that, but just so magnetic. You know, you know when you're at a party or something or a group and, and somebody walks in the room and everybody just stares. They don't have to be the tallest or the the biggest or the most beautiful or the whatever. It's just, there's some magnetism about it. Right. That charisma. Hor Horowitz, that. Yeah. Horowitz had that in spades. And when he played, you were just drawn to that. Um, and he had such a personality, uh, which, which partly hurt him. I mean, he, he was so eccentric in some mm. ways, you know, he quit the concert stage for 12 years. He just couldn't perform. He had incredible nerves and, um, uh, very, very self, uh, uh, critical as, as all artists are, but really self-critical and, and, uh, couldn't always deal with some of the pressures. Mm. But, um, at the end of the day, he's, he's one of my favorites. And even now I listen to him, uh, with certain pieces that now I've played. And, and I think, gosh, is that what I remember when I was a kid? I mean, he, he does all these things wrong. <laughs> you know, but it's not about wrong. It's, it's great. You know, it's still great. So. It's, and so, and so moving kind of moving forward, you know, who it sounds, you know, it's funny cause people do, they'll say, you know, um, you know, you have Beethoven and then Cherny and then, you know, like you have this like, line of, of yeah, this lineage goes right. down. Um, but, but, and, and so, you know, I don't necessarily want to go lineage way, but, but, but I, there's definitely those influences and I'm curious, mm -hmm. like who, um, who today is, are, who today maybe represents some of those, um, you know, ideals that, that, uh, maybe the, the, the being perfect, being artistic, being charismatic, like what, what, what are you, um, what are you seeing today in today's pianists? Yeah. Well, in preparation for this and, and we're getting into that now, it's, I made a huge list and I kept adding to it because it, at first I thought, Let's just make a yeah. It's list a big of, list. <laughs> yeah, of like five pianists up and coming, you know, under twenty five. And then I got to a couple. I was like, well, they're you know they're twenty eight and they're amazing, and people might not know that name. And then I got into older people, and I thought, well, they're they're you know performing. Maybe people don't know that name. So what I my goal was to um, make a list of pianists that might not be on the fronts of people's mind. That's good, uh, yeah. And so that they can listen to them. Now, I will make a couple uh, disclaimers. One is that this whole list, and maybe we can put the, the list in, in liner notes, I'm not sure, but the list that I came up with, of course, there are many pianists missing right. uh, from the list. And I'm sure if somebody's listening who's a diehard fan of, I don't know, Jane Smith, will say, well, why didn't you put Jane Smith in there? She's the best pianist I've ever heard. Okay, well, you know, right. that's fine. Uh, maybe. But this, these are the ones I chose uh, yeah. at this moment in time, and maybe tomorrow I would choose some different ones. These are people that I think have have really influenced the world, the piano world we live in, um, or have contributed a lot to it. Um, the other caveat I'll I'll say is that uh, I don't really want to talk about the, the very well known ones, but there are, like I said, 50, like the 60 Glenn years Goulds ago. of the world. Uh, yeah. I do want to talk about living pianists first yeah. of all. So there are some great ones that have passed away like Glenn Gould, like uh, Rubinstein, like Horowitz that I'm just not going to mention. Um, and I wanted to just talk about living pianists and hopefully active pianists. 
um, because some of the, a couple of the ones on the list from the early times are not really performing anymore. Right. Um, but the other thing is, to me, okay, so I'll, I'll go through th- some levels of maybe who knows whom. Um, the general population today, I don't even think knows one famous pianist. Like if you went on the street and said, name a famous pianist, they might name Alicia Keys or Billy Joel. And, you know, I named those two because those two actually have what is called a classical training today, which is so weird for me. It's like either you've been trained to play piano well or or you haven't. But um, they both, I think Alicia Keys even studied or took some classes at Juilliard. I mean, she doesn't, doesn't have a piano performance degree from Juilliard, nor, nor does Billy Joel, but they took classes, both of them, at a reputable conservatory, uh, and they had lessons throughout their childhood. So, you know, they can, they can really play piano, but only really to a certain level, uh, like that, that local kind of your, your block level. Um, and so most people in the world would just know those names. They wouldn't know the Horowitzes of today or even of yesteryear, of yesterday. They might not know any of the names today. And then you've, you've got sort of that next level of musicians, but they're not pianists. And so there are musicians that are not pianists that might know one or two names. And that's about it. And maybe not even. I think the non-pianist musicians are pretty similar to the non-musicians in terms of what famous people they might be following because they're involved with their instrument and their art and just don't have space in their brain to put you know, pianist name in there. And then you get pianists, and I think there are two categories of pianists. There are the those that, you know, I'm talking about people that really study and maybe are going to conservatory or university and studying music and piano. There are those that uh, do their own art. They might know a couple uh, famous names that they've heard in concert, or maybe they have a few CDs of so-and-so, um, or they know their teachers and their teacher's teachers, those kinds of things. And then there are pianophiles, people that just love piano love to know all about it, all aspects of it, including the history and the people that came before them and, and how it's all spread out. And I'm, I'm a true pianophile. Uh, and so I tend to know a lot of names and I, I maybe more than I need to. I don't always think that's a healthy uh, obsession, but um, I do follow a lot of that. So, so with that, let's go ahead and uh, take a quick pause and uh, we'll continue this um, on the next podcast with Elias. Elias, thanks so much. Um, you've been this is Mike Levitt and you've been listening to And If Love Remains. <laughs> 